start because there is no better reason to shout our praise than the fact that we have been redeemed by our loving God, redeemed by his grace, as the song said. We have a couple of announcements and then we'll dive back into worship. Uh, The first is just a reminder that there are many announcements and I'm not going to go through them, but if you're not getting the emails, let me know or let Steve know so we can add you to that list. We don't bombard you with spam, but, uh, but every Friday we send out the announcements and encourage you to look at your bulletins. Uh, There's a couple that I just want to draw your attention to. One is there's a whole lot going on with women's ministry, so check your email. Uh, Women of the church, check the bulletin as well. And there are some sign-up sheets out at the welcome desk for a couple of those things, an evening Bible study on James and uh, child care for the different functions. The other is VBS. There's a huge number of announcements with VBS as well, so I would encourage you there to just go to the table that's set up And it's got a whole bunch of information and things you can look at there. Those are the only two, and those weren't very specific, so you have to look to get the specifics in the email. Again, if you don't get those, let let me know. It's easy to add you. Uh, Let's shift hearts back to worship. That's why we're here this morning. We're going to start with Psalm 130. And Psalm 130, it's a beautiful psalm because it really is a call to seek the grace of God, to recognize our sin. And The story behind this one is quite fascinating with one of our famous evangelists, right? John Wesley. For those who know John Wesley, a famous evangelist, he began his preaching ministry when he was not yet converted to Christ. But he went to church and he heard Psalm 130 being sung. And when it was sung, it struck him, that verse 3, that if God counts and keeps track of all of our sins, who could possibly be saved? And then you get to the end, and it's because of God's abundant love and his grace and his mercy that if we'll turn to him, we can be saved. And later that night, he went to a Bible study on Romans, and it was there that he was converted to Christ. But this was the beginning for him. So let's read Psalm 130. Out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. O Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my pleas for mercy. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. I wait for the Lord. My soul waits, and in his word I hope. My soul waits for the Lord more than watchmen for the morning. More than watchmen for the morning. O Israel, hope in the Lord. For with the Lord there is steadfast love, and with him is plentiful redemption. And he will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come humbly into your presence this morning. We ask for your grace and your mercy. We're thankful for the forgiveness that you extend to us through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Lord, we pray that this morning you would glorify yourself through our singing, through our praise, through the preaching of your word, that your Holy Spirit would be active in our hearts, opening our eyes and our minds to the wonderful and glorious truths in Scripture about who Jesus is, what Jesus has done, and that glorious call to us to repent and believe and know the joy of walking in Christ. Lord, we pray this morning that distractions would be removed and that this time would indeed be dedicated to you in our hearts and that our worship would be with all our hearts, mind, and soul. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.
Well, as you know, we are finishing up the day of Pentecost. If you're visiting with us this morning, we preach through books of the Bible, and we're currently in the book of Acts, Acts chapter 2, and we have spent the last couple of weeks looking at the events on that day where the church was created, and we finished last week with Peter concluding a sermon in which he presented Jesus Christ in all of his glory, all of his perfections, and now, in Peter's spirit-inspired words, we are going to be presented with the simplicity and the beauty of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the gospel of grace. And as we do that, we're going to be confronted at the same time by the difficulty of this simple saving call. It's the same call that Jesus made time and time again. He made it to his apostles when he said, follow me. Right? When he spoke those words to Peter, James, and John, they left the world that they knew as fishermen behind them. They left their nets, they left everything, and they followed Jesus. When he spoke it to Matthew, he stood up from his tax collector's table, a very lucrative business. He turned away from the world he knew, and he followed Jesus. It is such a simple message to come follow Jesus, but it is difficult because there is this turning away component, a turn away from the world and a turn toward Jesus Christ for salvation and life. And you know the words that we attach to those things, repent and believe, repent and believe. And so we encounter this this morning because the crowd having just heard who Jesus is. He is the Son of God in the flesh. What Jesus has done, lived perfectly, died on the cross in substitution for sins, and he has risen from the grave. They ask a question. And there is no more important question that can ever be asked than what do I need to do to be saved? What do I need to do to be forgiven of my sins and reconciled to God? What do I need to do to spend eternity in the presence of our Lord Jesus Christ? There are many, many false answers to this question that are out in the world today, even resounding in different churches. To the universalist, they promise salvation to everyone, which is a wonderful message to take to a dying world, but it is the wrong message, and we know that throughout Scripture. To the legalist, it's quite different. It's all about a series of rules, and if we follow enough rules... We might make ourselves savable, but that leads only to death as well. The moralist will focus on the good things that we in the church can do, and if we stack up enough good deeds, maybe God will put it in the scales and it will outweigh our bad deeds, and yet we know from Scripture all of our deeds are like filthy rags. God looks at the heart. Why do we do these things? And there and there is the ritualist or the ceremonialist who would say, to be saved, you must come to church and do these certain things, and if you do them often enough, then that will save you. Communion, baptism, all of these things, which are beautiful gifts to the church, but they turn into a religion of their own. But the most deceptive false answer I think that you hear today is that a person can be saved, they can believe in Jesus Christ, but deny him as Lord, and deny him as the Christ. They can recite some core truths of the gospel. You hear this often when you talk to people and they'll say just flippantly, well, I believe Jesus died for my sins. They may even state it more correctly that Jesus was truly God or is truly God and truly man. 
that he lived in perfect obedience to God, that he went to the cross to make the perfect sacrifice, that he ascended, or that he rose from the grave. Three days later, he ascended into heaven. He sits at the right hand of God. But if you say those words out loud, but there is no worship and a life devoted to sin, it does nothing more than just make one sound spiritual or religious. So Peter confronts this this morning because in our text, Peter will give the only answer, the only correct answer to the question of what must we do to be saved. And this is an answer in keeping with all of the Old Testament, what has been laid out for us there, and in keeping with Jesus Christ's ministry as he began. Where he said in Mark chapter 1, the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand, repent and believe in the gospel. So here we turn to the end of Peter's discussion with this crowd. He's finished his sermon. We'll begin reading in verse 36 because this is his setup for what comes next. He says, Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart. And said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent, and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words, He bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come as always humbled before your word, eternally grateful that you have chosen to speak to us, that we might know Jesus, and that we might know how to follow him, that we can be saved that we can be reconciled to you, that we can become your children. Lord, please open our hearts this morning. Please glorify yourself. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, on the day of Pentecost, we know the final stage of redemptive history began, right? The next thing we're looking forward to is Jesus Christ returning in power and glory. Now, on that day, 120 disciples of Jesus were gathered together for prayer and worship, and with signs and mighty wonders, the Holy Spirit was poured out upon them. He was gifted to them, but not just gifted them, he filled them, we saw, and he empowered them for gospel ministry, and they began proclaiming the mighty works of God, the gospel of Jesus Christ, in many languages to the people in the crowd. And then Peter stood, and he delivered a sermon with the 11 other apostles there with him, And it was a sermon that explained what they were seeing, their current events, while it was focused entirely on who Jesus is, what Jesus has done, and the fact that he is Lord of all. He began that sermon by pointing to the prophet Joel to explain what they were seeing and hearing, the start of the end of days, and to remind the crowd of the certainty of the coming judgment of God, the day of the Lord that would be fast approaching. And so he was presenting to them an urgency that we should all feel, that the whole world should feel, to respond to the gospel, to see Jesus Christ and come to him, because as Joel concluded, as Peter concluded this section, he noted that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. What a glorious promise. 
The majority of his sermon then shifted and focused on how do you call on the name of the Lord? Who is the Lord? And he pointed to Jesus. He is truly man and truly God. And this was attested to all by all of his miracles that he had done. He said Jesus was put to death because of sin. And in particular to this crowd, because of your sin, you convicted him. You sent him to the cross. But he gave this assurance It was all done according to God's perfect plan that was established before time began to achieve his purpose of saving his people. And Jesus didn't remain dead and buried, he said. He was raised from the dead, and this is something that was foretold by the prophets and witnessed by the apostles. And now Jesus, he says, has been glorified. He has been exalted to the right hand of God, which is a position of power and authority and honor, and he now reigns and rules with the Father, mediating this gift of the Holy Spirit. So he's concluding to point out to them that to call upon the name of the Lord for forgiveness means turning to Jesus Christ. But no gospel presentation is actually complete without demanding a response. You must demand a response. And to this crowd who had denied the only Savior and Lord, they asked the most important question. It's a question every person needs to ask and have answered. And we'll cover the text in just three headings, and we're just following right along with it. The request, the response, and the result. In verse 37, it says, Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? Brothers, what shall we do? You have just laid out. We stand guilty of rejecting Christ, Jesus, the one we've been waiting for as Jews. This Jesus who says he is the way and the truth and the life and no one enters heaven's gates except through him. What shall we do? How can we now be saved if we have rejected him? It is the question that had to have been on everybody's minds if they had listened to the sermon. You'll remember, we've touched on this many times, the Holy Spirit is at work. He is at work in Peter in speaking. He is at work in the 120 Disciples who are proclaiming the gospel, he is at work in the hearts of the people with open ears. And we remember what his work is. Jesus said that he will bear witness about me, about Jesus. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment concerning sin because they do not believe in me. Do you see how that's happening here? They didn't believe. They sent him to the cross. And now they're convicted by that concerning righteousness because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer. Peter has just laid out the righteousness of Christ, the Son of God in the flesh. And concerning judgment because the ruler of this world is judged and he began that way. All of these works of the Spirit have been powerfully presented in Peter's sermon. But his conclusion, that verse 36, was devastating to his audience. He had boldly proclaimed that God had made known to them that Jesus was Lord and the Christ, and they had rejected him. Worse, they're sitting there 53 days after the crucifixion. They had sent him to his death. And so the text says they were cut to the heart by this reality. That language refers to a sharp, stabbing pain in kind of an emotional sense. We would say it differently today. We would say they were sick to their stomachs. They were faint. They were broken. They were fearful about what they had done and what the consequences would be. That is what being confronted by sin against a holy God does. The sinner knows that sin can't be undone. There's real consequences. It can't even be paid for by us because the wages of sin is death. We need a savior. 
Worse still for this crowd because remember they were all Jews there for a feast. They knew their scriptures. You might remember how this sermon had concluded by quoting Psalm 110. And Peter pointed to the lordship of Jesus Christ. But they would all know this very short psalm. It also pointed to the coming wrath against his enemies. Psalm 110, 5 and 6 says, He, Christ, will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. He will execute judgment among the nations, filling them with corpses. He will shatter chiefs over the wide earth. They knew the scriptures. They understood what Peter was pointing to. And they stood there having rejected Jesus. Not just rejecting him from afar, but many had been there while he was being mocked. Many had shouted crucify him, had sent him to this humiliating and excruciating public execution. And here they are listening to this. Now this is important for us, not just them, because recognizing the wickedness of our own sin in our hearts is what confronts us with the reality that we need a Savior. We need a Savior. The devil's lie is to come up with all kinds of ways to tell you sin is okay. That you can love your sin and maintain some sort of relationship with God. They knew different. We know different because Scripture states otherwise. Isaiah says, your sins, your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God. And your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. He does not even answer. These Jews had come to realize the gravity of their situation. They felt the weight of the crucifixion of Jesus. And all of us should feel the same way, right? We should recognize that the saving work of Jesus on the cross wasn't just for their sins. It was for all of our sins. Colossians paints this picture in a very beautiful way because it puts the promise of Christ right ahead of what he did on the cross. In Colossians chapter 2, 13 and 14, it says, And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, that's all of us, God made alive together with him having forgiven us all of our trespasses, all of our sins, every one of them, by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands, which is death eternal. And then it concludes this way. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. So we too look to the cross and realize he was there for us, all who are forgiven by Jesus, all who are reconciled to God by the perfect, substitutionary, atoning death of Jesus should look to the cross with thanksgiving, gratefulness, and sorrow. Because the cross was necessary. It was the plan of God to redeem people. And Peter had made that clear. But they were stuck with the same questions that people have today. That's all good, but how will that saving grace save them? How will it save us? How will it save our family? How will it save our neighbor? How will it save our community? How does this apply? So cut to the heart by the reality of their own sin in the face of a holy and righteous God, they ask the question, brothers, what must we do? And that is the natural and necessary response to every person who has been convicted of sin. It's why the first work listed of the Holy Spirit is to convict a sinner of sin in the heart because without recognizing that you're sinful, there's no need for a savior. So it is the most important thing. So Peter is now going to answer the question, which is our second point, the response. And here we'll dwell for most of the time. Verse 38, Peter said to them, here's what you must do. Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ 
for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And we're going to take that in parts. That statement is smoothed out for us to read in English, but it's a response made up of several distinct statements. And the first part of that response should be, I think, surprising to us because of the way that the gospel is often presented, often softened up in an effort to make people feel pretty comfortable and appeal to sinners, and honestly, a lot of times just because it makes us feel more comfortable because when people reject Christ, we feel like they're rejecting us when we tell them the message. So I just ask you, think in your head, what's your answer to that question? What must I do to be saved? What's the first words that come to your mind? Because Peter gives the only correct answer that leads to salvation by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. And Peter's response is not the word most of us would first think of. He says repent. If you want to be saved, if you want life in Christ, the only life giver, then you must repent. There is no salvation without true repentance. There is no salvation without true repentance. There's a biblical truth, and that is a really, really tough thing to say. And it is a really tough thing to hear in our day and age, in 2023. So just keep that in mind and bear with me as we flesh this out and see what it is that God means by this. Because this is not unique to Peter. This is all throughout the Gospels, it's all throughout the New Testament, it's all throughout the Old Testament. Jesus says this time and time again. Many of you follow the Meshane reading plan in the Bible. If you did, you would have seen it on Saturday in Matthew chapter 11, where Jesus pronounces these woes on these cities that had seen his miracles. And he doesn't say, woe to you, you cities, because you didn't believe. He says, woe to you, you cities. If I had done these miracles elsewhere, they would have repented, and you didn't. And then he moves on to talk about all who come to me will be saved. Chapter 12, which was the chapter this morning, does the same thing, pointing to Jonah. Woe to all of you, because if you had heard this message, the Ninevites are going to stand up and condemn all because they repented, right? But what word do we usually use? I think when we're asked the question, we're generally pretty quick to assert belief. Belief is our answer to that question. What must I do to be saved? Believe. Believing alone is enough. And I'll tell you, that's true. It's actually true. So I'm not here to say that that's not true. But what we have is a definitional problem. We've taken it upon ourselves to define certain terms without turning back to Scripture. Because believing for salvation doesn't just mean agreeing with a set of historical facts about Jesus. James 2.19 says, even the demons believe that and they shudder because they know where they're going. But it is fair to say, and we're going to reconcile these things, It's fair to say that throughout Scripture, we repeatedly see that it is belief, faith, that is all that is required for salvation. You all know John 3.16, which ends, whoever believes in Jesus shall never perish but have eternal life. You know Romans 10.9, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Well, so is Peter wrong? Did he say the wrong word? Are all the sermons in Acts flawed because they point all to repentance? Was Jesus wrong as you go through the gospel? And he calls for repentance and salvation. Was he wrong in the Great Commission in Luke when he said, go out and proclaim repentance to all the nations? Or is there a contradiction in Scripture? And the answer to all those questions is no. No. It's just simply a matter 
of making sure we use biblical definitions for biblical terms because in many respects, and you'll see this as you study the scriptures, the Bible uses repentance and belief interchangeably because you cannot have one without the other. You you really can't have saving faith, true faith in Jesus without repentance, without turning away from something to turn toward him. So repentance and belief are just two sides of the same coin, which is why the Bible often uses just one or the other. They imply the other one when one is used. Uh, Let me lay this out in, in kind of two ways. Logically, think of it this way. The call to repent is a call to turn away from something. And you can't turn away from something without turning toward something, right? You can't be faced in two toward two opposing realities at the same time. I can't be looking forward and looking backward at the same time. When we repent, that call to repent is a call to turn away from sin and turn in faith toward Jesus Christ. You can also look at it as a biblical necessity, a theological necessity, because it's impossible to really accept that anyone who truly understands sin Right? Sin is rebellion against God. It is an affront to his holiness. It is rebellion against his nature. And sin must be judged. That's why Christ went to the cross. Because sin evokes the eternal wrath of God. So one cannot say that they love sin, they understand all that about sin, and they understand Jesus, the perfect, holy, and righteous Son of God who came, lived among us, and died for us. They can't really say they follow Jesus as his disciple in faith and belief. They're saved by his blood, all the while loving sin, which God hates. It's an impossibility. Without repentance, a person would somehow be suggesting to you that sin is actually more beautiful. It is more satisfying, more promising than life in Jesus Christ. Right? And that's not possible. So repentance, you can think of, is what you turn away from. And faith is who you turn to. That is why there are two sides of the same coin. You trust in the power and work of Jesus Christ alone to provide forgiveness, righteousness, and eternal life. Listen to the way Paul summarizes his ministry in Acts 20, 21. And this is a good one to go back to because it really lays out these two things. He said he was testifying to both Jews and to Greeks, so to everyone, of repentance toward God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. They go hand in hand, repentance toward God and a faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. The saving gospel is only saving if it results in repentance and faith. And that might sound difficult. It might not sound like something we hear often, but it is the truth of God's word. It is his promise to us. And you see it from the beginning. You see it proclaimed by kings. Solomon, when he dedicated the temple, said, in 1 Kings, they have, when they have sinned against you, if they pray toward this place and acknowledge your name and do what? And turn from their sin, then hear in heaven and forgive the sins of your servant. It shows up in every single one of the prophets. Starting in Isaiah, a redeemer will come to Zion, to those in Jacob, speaking of Christ. He will come to those who turn from transgression, declares the Lord. You must repent. Jeremiah 19 Thus says the Lord, behold, I am shaping disaster against you and devising a plan against you. Return everyone from his evil way. Amend your evil ways and your deeds. Turn away. Daniel is going through the prophets. We have not entreated the favor of the Lord our God, turning from our iniquities and gaining insight by your truth, Holy Scripture. 
We must turn. You can actually go through all of the prophets and do the same thing, but jump to John the Baptist, the very last of the prophets, and he was called to prepare the people for the coming Messiah. Listen to how his ministry began in those days. This is Matthew 3. John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. We know Jesus then came. What was Jesus' message right out of the gate? Matthew 4, same words. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. This message is then picked up with Peter. We just read that. If you flip the page in Acts to his next sermon, it's the same call for salvation. He points to Jesus Christ as the Savior, as the Lord of all, and he says in Acts chapter 3, 19, Repent, therefore, and turn back that your sins may be blotted out, that they may be forgiven. Well, this is all well and good, some say, but all of those messages, the prophets, the kings, John the Baptist, even Peter, are all speaking to Jews. They knew God. They knew the scriptures. What if it went to pagans? What if it went to Gentiles who did not know God at all? Surely then we would need to change the message. You only need to jump to Acts chapter 17 to see the answer to that. Paul is now proclaiming the gospel on Mars Hill. He's speaking to Athenians. They are pagans. They know nothing about God. And he issues the same message and the same call for people to respond in faith to be saved by Jesus. Listen to the way he says it in Acts 17.30. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. And then he tells them why. Because... God has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by Jesus, right? By a man whom he has appointed, and of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. I point all that out, and we have just scratched the surface just to say, Peter is not off base here. This is the consistent message of Scripture, the consistent saving message. Repent and believe are part of the same activity, the same work of the Spirit in our hearts, The same thing that brings us all to salvation. But we need to know what does repentance mean? Because I think that gets very confused today. We need to know what it means and we need to know what it does not mean. And so I want to start really with what it does not mean. What does repentance not mean? First off, repentance is not sinless perfection. It is not sinless perfection when you turn from your sins. The Apostle John reminds us in 1 John 1, verses 8 and 9, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. And then he goes on to give us the model for our pattern of life as followers of Christ. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And I know we all rely on that promise daily. In a little book titled, What is the Gospel?, And it's a very little book. It's a great one to give away by Greg Gilbert. What is the gospel? He sums it up, I think, so well. He writes this. Christians are still fallen sinners even after God gives us new spiritual life. And we will continue to struggle with sin until we are glorified with Jesus. Repentance means that we will no longer live at peace with our sins. That's your key. Right? We will declare mortal war against them and dedicate ourselves to resisting sin by God's power on every front in our lives. He then moves on and says this, the question that reveals whether we've truly repented and one that we need to challenge our own hearts with is do we hate sin and war against it or do we cherish our sin and defend it 
making excuses for it, downplaying it, saying it's normal. So repentance will not make you perfect. Repentance brings you to the cross to be saved. Repentance, and this one I think is the most important thing, as you share the gospel and as you look at your own life, repentance is not a command to clean up your life so that you are fit for salvation. That's not what it means. You need to understand that. Repentance is not, absolutely not a command to clean yourselves up so that you can be saved. That's not what Peter is saying. That would be a fool's errand. That is an impossible task. And that will march you straight into legalism that will never save you. To understand that repentance would be cleaning yourself up like that to earn salvation or make yourself savable would turn repentance into a work to earn salvation. And that would undermine the very gospel of grace that Jesus Christ proclaimed and which he fulfilled. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 says, For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. So you can't work your way into it. It's the gift of God, the gift of God that comes through and in Jesus Christ, not a result of works so no one can boast. There's no repentance scale where we can walk around and look at others and feel self-righteous. It doesn't work that way. Finally, repentance is not simply fear of consequences of sin. It's not just the fear of consequences of sin. Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians 7.10, Godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation. Godly grief is recognizing that sin is an affront to our Lord Jesus Christ. That's godly grief. Whereas worldly grief produces death. Worldly grief, attacking each little sin just because you're worried about the consequences either here in this life or eternally is not what's called for. This is not trying to come up with a list of sins and pick them off in your life. It's like picking bad apples off a tree, right? We're to go to the root. We're to hate sin. Because true repentance, it's not just the dread, it's not just the shame that results from the consequences of sin, it's a shift in dreading sin itself. We must be bothered by every affront against God. So what is repentance? Those are some things that it is not. And again, there's entire books written on this, so we are scratching the surface on this one. What is repentance? Genuine repentance can be summarized pretty easily as a transformation of mind, heart, and will. It is ultimately not about perfection, but about picking sides. Either picking or remaining on the losing side of sin and rebellion, or picking the side of Christ and standing with God and His Word against sin, against our own sin. And here's the other important thing to recognize. What Peter's talking about is their own sin, right? What we're talking about is dealing with our own hearts. And we're not worried yet about running out in the world and picking apart other people's sins. But we need to worry about ours first. Do we walk with Christ? And then share that message. It begins in the mind. We've sort of hit this over and over again. It begins with a recognition of sin as defined by God in His Word. And it is conviction of the Spirit in our hearts through the Scriptures, which brings this to mind. David models this well in Psalm 51, where he says, I know my transgressions, and my sin is ever before me. Against you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. He recognizes the sinfulness of his actions, the sinfulness of his heart. And the heart 
is what is involved too. Scripture speaks often of those who repent as people who have a sincere sorrow and remorse, even mourning over their sin because they love Christ. Jesus said, blessed are those who mourn for they will be comforted. They will be comforted by his grace. They will be comforted by his forgiveness. And with a repentant mind and a repentant heart, we come to God because we have a humble recognition of the need for God's grace, God's mercy that is extended to us through Jesus Christ to wash us clean. David, in the same psalm, captures that same concept. This is a prayer that is beautiful, that we can all pray, have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, unfailing love, loyal love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity, and cleanse me from my sin, and all of that has been accomplished by Jesus Christ for those who will turn to him. Genuine repentance is finally evidenced by a transformed will, our desires, our actions, right? Now, don't get this backward, right? We've already covered this. You can't get this backward. You can't, make your, you can't change your behavior or your desires in life to make yourself savable. That's not the way that that works. We come to God in need of his washing, not saying, hey, I got all this stuff taken care of, God. Aren't you glad to have me? No, it works the other way around. We're glad to have him because he cleanses us from sin. But true repentance does result in a transformed life, in changed desires, in changed behaviors, even as we fight the battle against our own temptations and sins every single day by the power of God. And those temptations are different for every person, and those sins are different for every person. But the will changes. Speaking to King Agrippa, Paul said this, He said he declared to all people that they should repent and turn to God, performing deeds in keeping with their repentance. There should be an observable change in a life that gives evidence to true repentance, that gives evidence to the fact that a person has turned away from sin, their love of sin, their love of the world, that they understand sin is evil, that it is an affront to God, that it must be judged, and has turned toward Jesus Christ in total faith and belief in seeking to please him and act for his glory and good pleasure. That's why they go hand in hand, repentance and belief. It's the same thing. It's turning. John the Baptist said, bear fruits in keeping with repentance. Our lives should give evidence to this because repentance means a total reorientation of life toward Jesus as Lord and Savior. But it's not to be done alone. This is what Peter points to. There is the gift of the Holy Spirit together with the Holy Spirit. Oh, he can work on this daily because repentance is a gift from God. Acts eleven eighteen points to that. And in 2 Timothy, we are told this is why we study. This is why we teach. This is why we correct with gentleness because God may perhaps grant unbelievers repentance leading to a knowledge of the truth. So it's a beautiful gift. Repentance is a change. It's a turning away from sin. That's the hard part of the gospel in the world today where people believe this lie that you can have both, and you can't. That might be the hard part. But what Peter said next in this answer is perhaps the most confused part of his speech today. He has essentially laid out, he said, you want to be saved, then repent. Turn away from sin. Turn toward Jesus Christ. Believe. Have faith. Now the next part. Be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ. Let me say this simply, and then I'll explain it. 
There are some nuances in the language here. We won't go into them. You can come talk to me later if, you, if you're dying to dig into this one. But what he's saying is, give your life to Christ, but not public, not privately, publicly. Make your profession of Jesus Christ as Lord public. Show the world externally what Jesus Christ has done in you. Align yourself with him. Align yourself with the followers of his church, Christ's body. Because this is the initiatory rite. It's the initiation, right? It's the first ordinance, the first sacrament. It's the first step of positive obedience by every believer toward righteousness in Christ. And when you do this and you join this church, as we'll see at the end, then you partake of that great fellowship with believers. See, Peter is not worried about making the gospel easy, which is really surprising. He is making this really difficult on his audience. He's telling them there's no option to keep your salvation and commitment to Jesus Christ as Lord a secret. You can't just worship him in your home and act however you want outside. And this is a huge issue to this crowd that Peter is speaking to. It's something that we really can't understand in the West. Not yet, anyway. We, we don't face the kind of open persecution that they would have. This would have been more akin to what happens in Muslim countries, what Peter was doing. When a person there is baptized, when they make a public and outward declaration that they follow Jesus Christ as Lord, they lose everything. They lose everything. They're disowned by family. They're often treated as dead to family. They often lose housing and jobs. Many face the threat of physical harm, even death. And you can read these stories. There are countless stories about this. Now, look at who Peter was preaching to. These were very committed Jews. They were in Jerusalem for the Feast of Weeks. Now they would be publicly declaring that they were disciples of Jesus. They would declare to all of the Jews that Jesus is the Christ. He is the Lord. He is the only Savior. And they would very likely be kicked out of the synagogue for that. They would lose their identity in families. They would lose their identity in communities. They would make themselves really just sort of the untouchable in their group. Consider just a couple of episodes with Jesus, and it highlights a little bit the danger they were facing. In John chapter 9, Jesus had healed a blind man, and the Jews called that man before the religious authorities in the synagogue, and they questioned him, and they didn't get anywhere, so they brought his parents in, and his parents dodged the question, it says, because they feared the Jews, for the Jews had already agreed that if anyone should confess Jesus to be Christ, he was to be put out of the synagogue. Later, the blind man came in, and he did profess Jesus as Christ, and they did indeed cast him out. And the language there in that text, if you go back and read it, makes it very clear. When they cast him out of the synagogue, they were saying, you are condemned to hell, right? You are condemned in your sins to hell. So this was a big deal to them. Later in John chapter 12, Jesus performed many signs. He taught people, and we read at the end of his teaching Nevertheless, many, many even of the authorities believed in him, but for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it so they would not be put out of the synagogue. This is a huge deal to them. We just don't even face this here, but to be baptized and publicly confess Jesus as Lord would make these Jews outcasts, complete outcasts. They're being called possibly to forsake everything for the glory of knowing Jesus Christ, of being forgiven by him, of standing reconciled to God as true children of God. 
Now, what's not suggested, the act of being baptized is not suggested here as being necessary for salvation in this text. That is a very easy reading of it, but it is an incorrect reading. It's, one, it's, it's all hinging on that little word for, which can actually be translated in many different ways. But I would just tell you, this is a, a place where we need to be careful, and you always need to be careful of this. Do not build an entire doctrine off of one verse in Scripture. There's a great danger in that. Because you see throughout Scripture all of the apostolic teaching in the New Testament, it consistently links salvation with repentance toward God and faith in Jesus Christ. That's it. Peter's very next sermon is a good example of that, and we looked at that earlier. What is baptism associated with? It is associated with, in Scripture, with a full commitment to follow Jesus. You go all the way back to John the Baptist, a slightly different baptism. It was before Christ. But it was an outward washing that did nothing for the Jews other than represent an inward repentance that they had made. It was an external sign. And baptism of Christians is an outward sign of an inward reality. It is a physical and public representation of our faith in Jesus and the transforming work of the Holy Spirit in our lives and in our hearts. Romans 6 paints it this way, do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried therefore with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. It is a picture of what God has done to save us and it's commanded that we do it. Now, not only is baptism unnecessary for salvation, baptism actually cannot save you. It cannot save you. It will not save you. You have a record of this in Acts chapter 8 of at least one man who was baptized and then was unsaved. Simon the magician. He makes some sort of profession of belief. He was baptized. But when Peter arrives, he says to him, you have neither part nor lot in this matter For your heart is not right before God. You are unsaved is what he is saying. Listen to what he says next. Same command. Repent. Repent, therefore, of this wickedness of yours and pray to the Lord that if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven you. Give you another example. Paul wrote to the Corinthians. In 1 Corinthians, Paul says, I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius so that no one may say that you were baptized in my name. And listen to verse 17. Paul, the greatest evangelist in history, the greatest missionary and the first missionary, really, that God called, who planted churches, who wrote a great amount of scripture, who was called by Christ, something that he makes abundantly clear in all of his letters. He says this in 1 Corinthians 1.17. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel. Christ did not send me to baptize, He sent me to preach the gospel. That statement would be absolutely incomprehensible if baptism were necessary for salvation, right? What would you read there if baptism was necessary? Paul would, in essence, be boasting. He'd be bragging that he came in, he proclaimed Jesus Christ in all of his glory, he called for repentance and faith, and people did that, and he left them, kind of snuck away, chuckling, you're all going to hell, right? And we know that's not what Paul's saying. We know that's not what he's saying. That's clearly not the case. Baptism is a public expression of something that has already happened. You've repented. You've believed. You are baptized. It follows forgiveness and salvation 
It doesn't cause it. And up until relatively modern times, baptism always closely followed conversion. The New Testament knows of virtually no one who's a believer who's not baptized and part of the church. You turned from sin, you repented, you turned toward Jesus Christ, you believed, you were baptized into the church, making a very public profession of your faith, who your Lord was, and you're following Him. Because being a Christian does indeed involve public identification, public commitment to other believers. We're called in church. That's why we come here every Sunday. It's why we don't just sort of float around to random churches, because we are called to love and serve one another, to worship together. And it's not just for our own benefit. It's for the benefit of our brothers and sisters who are here with us. And baptism is part of that identification. Now, the gift that every believer receives, as Peter points to, from the Father through Jesus Christ is the Holy Spirit. And while in this passage, that is somewhat linked to baptism, we're not going to spend really any time on it because you can't press that very far. Because throughout Acts, the Holy Spirit is given to everyone who believes, both before and after baptism. The Holy Spirit is active. He dwells within the hearts of everyone who has turned to Christ. There are no Christians who do not have the gift of the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit was not just for those at Pentecost 2,000 years ago. Salvation, the gift of the Spirit, is available to everyone who believes in Jesus. And Peter continued by saying, For the promise is for you and for your children, and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. Now Peter, he wouldn't have known it when he said this. He wouldn't learn this until later, and we'll encounter it in Acts chapter 10. The gospel's for Gentiles too. At this moment, he's still thinking it's for the Jews. This is how they're saved, made children of God. But all those far off, the gospel is for too. Paul uses the same language to refer to Gentiles, writing in Ephesians 2. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Peter's words here, Paul's words there, are important for us. It's a theme we see over and over again. There is no differentiation, no hierarchy, no preferences given among those who have been saved by grace through faith in Jesus. We are all one in Christ. We are all partakers of the same spirit. And so we join together, regardless of backgrounds, regardless of past sins, all of these things, we join together as one. Verse 40 says, with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, save yourselves from this crooked generation. Now, this sermon was obviously much longer than the couple of minutes it would take to read verses 14 to 36. That's a summary. But what's important here is it uses this word, Peter continued. He was continuously exhorting them. That's not a word we use often. Exhorting it means he was making a plea for action. He was calling for them to listen and do something. What he was doing was making a persuasive argument. He was laying out, and he has laid out for them, that Jesus is the Son of God in the flesh, come to save all who will turn away from the world and turn to him and follow him as Lord and Christ. And you should do this based on who he is and what he has done for you. Repent, place your faith in him. Be baptized in obedience. Identify yourself with Jesus and his people. That's the constant exhortation he's making. Because the only way to be saved from the judgment of God is to turn to Jesus Christ. 
He's saying you need to escape from the corrupting influence of your unbelieving society because that will only lead you to eternal death. They were facing that from a corrupted religion. That's what Peter is calling them from. And he's using words that Jesus used time and time again. You can sort of flip through the gospel and Jesus refers to the unbelieving world as an evil generation, as a twisted generation, as a crooked generation, as an adulterous and sinful generation. And it sort of goes on and on. Peter's sermon, his call is not just for them, it's for us. We need to turn away. We have to turn away and not listen to the voices of culture and politics and society, and we need instead to be grounded in the Word of God, in the very truth of Christ. James warns us, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. You need to turn from that and turn to Christ. We don't pull ourselves out of the world. We must be the proclaimers of the gospel into the world, but we must not be corrupted by it. And that's what Peter is saying. Well, what's the result on this great day? The Spirit delivered in a way we would all love to experience. Every one of us would love this. So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. Think about that. They had 120 to start with. I don't know what we have here today, probably about that. They had 3,120 at the end of the day. I was thinking just based on numbers, so don't take this as a judgment on communities. Just based on the numbers, that would be like sending everybody out to proclaim the gospel, preaching one sermon, and having all of West Union and Elgin repent, believe, and get baptized with enthusiasm to follow Christ as Lord in one day. That's the numbers that we're talking about. That's the powerful work of the Spirit. But there's a flip side to this. Let me put it into context. 3,000 came to faith that day. There would have been upwards of 200,000 Jews in Jerusalem at that time for the Feast of Weeks. So it's a tiny number in that context. There's much work to be done, right? The harvest is plentiful. The workers are few is what Jesus said. But I point that out really because I want you to see that the challenges that these new believers faced were as real as the ones we face in our world. Nothing has changed. They were a minority going out to proclaim Christ as Lord. To quote one commentator, by being baptized, the Jewish believers that day decisively rejected the authority of the religious hierarchy. They followed Jesus Christ, and they were prepared to endure the hatred and scorn of their former leaders and teachers and community, all for the sake of bringing him glory. What are we called to? Well, first and foremost, to look to Jesus Christ alone for salvation. He lived and died and rose again to save his people. He has all authority in heaven. We are called to turn away, right? Turn away from sin, to repent and follow Jesus Christ, seeking his mercy, seeking his forgiveness, and battling our sins daily. And we can rest We can rest in his finished work on the cross and the promise that all who call upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ shall be saved. And if we follow him, we have another command. He has commanded all of us to go and make disciples, to call all people to repentance and faith in Jesus Christ. Will it be easy? No. That is why we need the gift of the Spirit, which we all have, because we need to be clear, we need to be bold. 
We need to be very biblical. We need to always speak an authentic and true gospel that will challenge people to turn away from their sin and turn to Christ for salvation to escape the coming judgment of God because there is no other way. But the beauty is that by calling on the name of Jesus, you can experience forgiveness, the joy of Christ, eternal life. He is the only way. And so we're called to turn to him today and every day. And we're called to go out and proclaim him tomorrow in all of his beauty, all of his majesty, all of his glory. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, We're grateful for your grace to receive from you, our creator, our sovereign God, the exact opposite of what we deserve. That by your will, we have received the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. That you've picked our point in history so that we can look back and know with certainty from your word who this Jesus is, what he has done even as we look forward to his return in power and glory. And, oh, Lord, we pray like the apostles, come, Lord Jesus, for we long for that day, the new heavens and the new earth, when righteousness will abound and sin will be no more and we'll no longer be tempted in fighting. But until that day arrives, Lord, we pray that the Spirit would work in your people mightily. Give us the strength to resist temptation. Give us the courage to proclaim your word boldly and open the hearts of those in our families, in our community, to hear your word and respond by turning from sin and trusting in Jesus. Lord, we pray that you would use us this week as we go out into the world, that you'd continue to shape us and mold us in the image of our Lord Christ and that we would be used as powerful witnesses to those around us. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.